be saying is the fact that my God is faithful. Men are not. Men will betray you, disappoint you, break your heart, sometimes willfully, um, other times ignorantly and unintentionally. But God is faithful. He can be relied upon. He can be trusted. If you have your Bible this evening, follow me to the book of Daniel chapter 7. This is brand new. I don't Hot off the press, never preached it before. Y'all are my test audience. See if I'll ever preach it anymore. <laughs> you ever have a bad experience preaching the message for the first time and you say, bless God, I'll not preach, I'll not try that again. This is burning in my heart. The Lord spoke to me this week out of this passage and I began to write down these things and I feel like a fool trying to speak of them to be honest with you because I'm going to be touching on things much too large for me, too big. But God help us to grab it. Daniel 7. I'm going to read the text itself and then we'll back up and read its context. Verse 26. But the judgments shall sit. And actually, that is constructed in a way that it would be better translated. But the judge shall sit. The, the court shall be convened. The judge shall come in and convene the court. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. Boy, that got a hold to me, that statement. Hitherto... You see, don't get confused by the first chapter of the book or even halfway through the novel. Let's find out how the story ends. Hitherto is the end of the matter. And let's, let's pack up, back up a bit. I, I want to read a few verses in the early part of the passage to get some context for this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Verse 2, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. 
That could be literally translated a mouth that just bragged and bragged and bragged. And then verse 9 says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were open. And now I'm going to stop reading there. For the sake of time, you can read the rest of the chapter on your own. Down a little further, Daniel wanted some, some more enlightenment on that last beast. It was worse than the others. It was more dreadful and more intimidating. And so he, he inquired, and so the fourth beast is explained in verse 19. He was different from the others, exceeding dreadful. And down a little further in verse 20, it said he had a mouth that spake very great things. His look was more stout than his fellows. And I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. And it goes a little further down in verse 23 that says, He shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And then verse 25, And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of times. And then text, but the judgment shall sit. Now, I, I know that's rather dramatic language and fantastic imagery. That's one of the reasons that many people are drawn to the book of Daniel. There are all these fantastic things, spectacular uh, visions that are unfolded. And certainly that's an interesting thing to read. But, but for those of you who have, a, who have a serious heart and want to get into the book of Daniel further, you discover that the prophetic passages of Daniel really revolve around central theme and that theme is there is a God who's in charge he's ruling and reigning history's unfolding according to plan and all of this is going to wind up somewhere one day this is all headed to a destiny there's a destination that's been planned. And in this message, I'm not going to attempt to get into a detailed discussion of what these different beasts represent. I will say this. I'm convinced that this final beast, and especially this little horn that comes up, is a picture of the Antichrist who's one day going to come, who's going to make war with the very people of God and blaspheme all things that are holy. And seemingly, he's going to take the show over. He's going to rule with a rod of iron across the universe, so it will seem. But the text says, but the judge will be seated. One day the judge will be seated. And they will put an end to his authority. This is the Bible in basic English. This is that translation. But the judge will be seated and they will put an end to his authority to overcome it and send complete destruction on it and the kingdom and the authority and the power of the kingdoms under all the heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and all powers will be his servants and do his pleasure. Here is the end of the account. Now let me point out four things that stick out in this passage, these two verses that I'm going to use as my text, verses 26 and 27. First of all, this passage speaks of the matter of accountability. One thing is clear in the Word of God. There is an ultimate judge to whom even the Antichrist must finally give an account. Even the Antichrist. Now, I read some of the verses of chapter 7, and I did it hurriedly. I don't like to approach the Word of God in a hurried manner. I should have taken 
more time read them more slowly and thoughtfully with you, but I trust you were able to pick up on the gist of what's happening, especially those latter verses just prior to our text. Here is someone, here is a king represented as this little horn that comes up on this fourth beast, more terrible than all of the other kingdoms that will ever be seen on planet earth. There's this final kingdom and this last king who is brutal beyond description and who seems to conquer all. The Bible uses this term of him twice in this chapter. It says he speaks great things. Boy, he's a big talker, man. He thinks a lot of himself. He believes that he's a big deal to the point that he blasphemes the Most High God. And he seeks to impose his will on the very fundamental laws of the universe. That's what it means when it says he seeks to change times and seasons. He seeks to impose his will on the very fundamental laws of the universe. He attacks and apparently bests the very saints of God. It certainly seems that this loudmouth braggart, this last little horn, that's going to arise out of that fourth final beast is going to be unstoppable and irresistible. It looks as if the whole world is going to be brought to his feet and he's going to devour all opposition with brutal indifference, which is what blesses me with the simplicity of our text. But the judgment shall sit. But last night, Brother Don mentioned the beauty of that conjunction. I had already written this message before he preached that. I'll just mention it again. But, B-U-T, but is a beautiful word, especially in the context of the devil's crowd seeming to rule the roost and run the show. But, nevertheless, it can be translated, nevertheless, the court will convene and his authority will be removed, annulled, and destroyed forever. But, in spite of how things appear contrary to what many believe to be true. It must be infuriating to the enemy of Christ, the devil and his crowd. It must be infuriating to find this passage in the Bible, to have to be reminded by preachers like me and others who stand and read a text like this and quote it. It must be infuriating to be reminded that do what he will and come what may, the eternal judgment bench is still occupied by a living God and nothing will ever change that reality. A dear Christian friend, a dear Christian lady said a silly thing to me one day. I'm sure it's because she just hadn't thought through what she was saying. But it jarred me as I heard these words. She said to me, I know the devil's not as powerful as the Lord, but almost. I want you to know something tonight. I want you to get a hold on the great underlying truth of the universe. There's only one throne and there's only one who sits on it. And all other thrones and all other dominions and all other would-be rulers are sooner or later going to be brought to the same place on their knees before the Most High God with no alternative but to submit to His judgment. No alternative but to submit to His judgment. There's a lot of foolish boasting in the world today. There's a lot of anti-God propaganda and anti-Christ activity which finally is going to culminate in the rise of the Antichrist himself the man of sin who will embody not only the intentions of the devil but also the wicked rebellion of mankind against our Creator and our Redeemer. And the Lord is so good and so kind. He's so merciful and long-suffering 
that he patiently endures day after day the high-handed words and deeds of this God-hating, Christ-rejecting world. He continues even tonight to extend grace upon grace to mankind and draw sinners and invite sinners to himself to come and be saved. The Bible says God is not slack concerning his promise to usward, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that none not, that any, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. That's the heart of God. He puts up with all of this noise and nonsense sometimes in five minutes of watching the television. I say, Lord, how can you endure it? How can you endure a world of men and demons who say the things about you that they say and shake their fist in your face and spit on the blood of your son? How can you endure it? But our God is so merciful, so kind. Opportunity after opportunity is given. Year after year, he extends mercy and grace and calls sinners to himself. But this passage is a reminder that there is a day coming when the line will be crossed for good and all. And all created beings will be brought before the judgment bar of the God who made them. And they'll be forced to admit that there's only one real authority in the universe and beyond the universe. And from his judgment, there is no escape, there is no recourse, there is no appeal, and there is no power to resist. When he passes sentence, that's the end of the story. In Revelation chapter 4, the Bible says, John said, I heard a voice saying, come up here, and I'll show you things to come. And John said, I beheld, and a throne was in heaven, and one sat on it. I heard A.W. Tozer said, you young preachers looking for a sermon outline, here's a good one. There is a throne and it is occupied. Amen. There is a throne tonight and it is occupied. The issue of authority is, is the second thing I'd like you to notice. Not only accountability, there is a judge before whom all must account, even the devil and the Antichrist, but then the issue of authority. Look at verse 26 again. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion. Now that's the Antichrist. They shall take away his to consume and to destroy it unto the end. Just prior, just in the verse before, it says that he shall wear out the saints, he'll think to change times and laws, and it says, and they shall be given into his hand. Given, taken. Given to him, taken away. This is the matter of authority. Let me tell you something tonight. All earthly dominion has been given by sovereign God and will one day be taken away. There is not, a, there is not an authority, there is not a person in the world, in the, in the world of men or demons, who exercises any authority at all that that authority has not been given to him by God and one day it will be taken away. In fact, if you want to know the real theme of the book of Daniel, it is in the word given or gave, the past tense. You read through the book of Daniel, you'll start to notice it. I, I, you have to pay attention. You have to look beyond and behind those dramatic scenes like, like uh, uh, lion's dens and fiery furnaces and visions. You have to look behind it. But if you read carefully through the book of Daniel, you'll find this is the theme that crops up again and again. Let me give you a few instances. Back in Daniel chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And listen to this. And the Lord gave... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see, Nebuchadnezzar didn't conquer Jerusalem because he was the strongest king around. He conquered because God gave him Jerusalem. 
And that can be said of any situation. In chapter 1 and verse 17, those four Hebrew children, it says God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. In chapter 2 and verse 37, the Bible says, chapter 2 verse 37, in the midst of that great dream that Nebuchadnezzar had as Daniel interpreted the dream, it says in verse 37, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the air hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Nebuchadnezzar was king because God gave him a kingdom. God did that sovereignly. Chapter 4 and verse 17, I won't go into the details of this. Some of you remember this is my favorite chapter in the Old Testament, I think, when, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, learned the hard way who's in charge. He had to go crazy to do it. And most of us are about halfway there already. But one day he found out the hard way that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. There's a sovereign God in charge, my friend. The issue of authority is what leads right into our chapter and right into our text. Here are all of these beasts, these four incredible beasts culminating with this last one that is more intimidating than all of the rest rolled together who seemingly takes over everything. But the fact is God is sovereign over all of the unfolding of these events. He's raising up kings and taking down kings. He's giving authority to one and then taking it away, leading right up to that final last earthly kingdom, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Christ. It's given for a time. It's measured. The time is measured. The text says times and times and half a time. You can interpret that any way you want. I'm just saying there's a measurement. God said you start here, you end here. God says that. You start here, you end here. And when the day came that it ended, my friend, he just took away what he'd given to it because he's God. He's not running for office having to cast ballots or take polls. He's not concerned what you think about it. He's in charge of the situation. The issue of authority. What's the point of this? What's the point of the book of Daniel? The point is there's a God who runs the universe and everything and everyone else operates only at his discretion and with his permission. Only at his discretion and with his permission. You see, folks, there's a reality behind reality. There is a fact that is more factual than what you see on the evening news and discover on Google or Wikipedia. There's a truth more true, and that truth is the Creator has not abandoned His creation. The unseen, I, I know it's unseen by human eyes, but unacknowledged by most of the mortal world, hated and rejected by much of mankind, but the truth is God alone rules and reigns over the affairs of men. In Acts chapter 17 it says the God who made Paul preach this sermon in Athens amongst those high-minded philosophers. He said the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in shrines made by human hands and he isn't served by people as if he needed anything. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of humanity to live all over the earth, fixing the seasons of the year and the national boundaries within which they live so that they might look for God, somehow reach for him and find him. Of course, he's never far from any of us, for we live and move and exist because of him. 
King James says, in him we live and move and have our being. In my text, the emphasis is on the final taking away of all of the authority of the Antichrist and conferring that authority upon the people of Jesus. It's not funny now. There's nothing funny about it now because we're in, we're in the throes still of all of the God-hating rhetoric and blasphemy from the world and the flesh and the devil. But ultimately it is ironic and it brings a smile to my soul that in spite of all of the big talk and the loud boast of the devil's crowd, holy God will finally just effortlessly take away all of the dominion and the influence and even the place of the godless in his creation. Effortlessly as the Antichrist and his crew rage and broil and threaten to change times and laws. The Lord God just reaches out his sovereign hand and takes away all of the devil's authority. Psalm 2, the Bible says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And that's the rage that's going on all around us to this very hour. The heathen rage, the godless hate, the things of Christ, and they rage against his lordship. But the Bible says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. And it says in Psalm 2 that this is the heart of God, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And his covenant promise to his own son, his king is, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And you shall dash them with a rod of iron. I'm talking about God's authority this evening, the authority of the living God. There's no real authority but the Lord's, and all other authorities operate by divine permission. And I get a kick every time I read the last chapters of the book of Revelation. Revelation 19 records from John's perspective what Daniel is talking about right here in this chapter, that great battle of Armageddon. The enemies of God gather the Antichrist and his forces, the beast and the false prophet. They gather with the armies of men and they're defying holy God. And King Jesus rides out on that white horse of victory. And the Bible says that the beast and the false prophet are taken, just like that, taken and cast into the lake that burns without end, the fiery lake that burns without ever being quenched. And the Bible says that Jesus does it with the sword that goes out of his mouth. Isn't there something ridiculous about it? I mean, really, isn't it, isn't it strange? Isn't it rather humorous to you tonight that this great final battle is no battle at all? There's no battle. There's no fight. Jesus rides in and speaks, and it's done. Says it, and it's done effortlessly. The matter of authority, then the matter of award. The Bible says in our text, but the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, Verse 27, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. I want to tell you something, folk. The meek really shall inherit the earth. That's not a religious platitude. That's not a Christian cliche. That is plain spoken fact. That is sober Bible prophecy. The meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus said it in Matthew 5 and 5 in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37 is where it's spoken most often. Again and again in the 37th Psalm, the Bible says don't get all bent out of shape, worked up, fretful over the godless and the Christ-rejecting world. Don't let them get you all upset. Realize the meek shall inherit the earth and the godless shall have no part in it.
The great pulpiteer R.G. Lee preached the famous sermon, Payday Someday. And this text reminds us that it really does pay to serve the Lord. There is a The kingdom, along with the power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven, will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is eternal. To be numbered among the people of the saints of the Most High tonight demands some sacrifice and suffering. It really does. The Bible says all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The Word of God says, Let us go forth unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. In John 15, Jesus said, If they hate you, it's because they hated me first. They're not going to love you if they don't love me. If they call me Beelzebub, don't be shocked at what they call you as my disciples and my servants. And that's as it ought to be. The more I think on that, the more I realize how right that is. The disciples should be expecting and desiring to be viewed and treated as his Lord is. If they hate my God and they curse his name, then I don't want them loving me and blessing my name. No. I ought to want to walk so closely with Jesus and be so filled with God that the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen on me. That's how it ought to be. In the here and now, there is a price to pay to know God well and to walk with him in holiness and full surrender. But my friend, suffering and burden and reproach does not have the last say in the lives of the people of God. There is another chapter. There is more to come. The greatness of the kingdom will be given to the chosen ones of the Most High. That's one translation. His kingdom will be eternal. I want to read something. I'm, I'm going to hurry and finish. I'm almost done. Just about shot my load. I'm getting old and can't preach as long as I used to. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to read something. I want you to read it with me because you've got to see it to get it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3. Giving no offense in anything. I know I'm moving quickly. I'm in a hurry to hear Brother Herb preach. You hurry up with me now. Verse 3. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. My Lord, how I wish there'd be some preachers nowadays who'd live by that motto. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves ministers of God. Now I want you to follow these statements. This is in verse, uh, the Second Corinthians chapter 6. I started in verse 3. Now we're down in verse 4. In all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Notice the preposition, in. In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. That preposition in was used to say in the middle of all of these kinds of circumstances. Now notice that it changes to by. In verse 6, he was speaking of the circumstances in which they were living. Now, in the middle of those circumstances, it is by means of these things that I approve myself a minister of God. By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. And now notice again that the conjunction changes as, verse 8, as deceivers and yet true. Now here's where this passage ties into what I'm preaching tonight. You can't, you can't allow yourself to be deceived by appearances. 
He said, this is what the world said. The world thinks we're deceivers, but the fact is we're true. As unknown, the world says we're nobodies, we're nothings. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As chastened and not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. And now notice this last phrase. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. As having, it seems as if, it looks as if we have nothing, but the God's honest truth is we have all things. We have all things. The matter of acknowledgement, lastly. Read this last phrase, the matter of acknowledgement. I'm not going to preach it. I'm just going to read it to you. Verse 27, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. All dominions. That's what I've been preaching all along, isn't it? That appearances can be deceiving. Finally, all men are going to be forced to see and acknowledge what was really real all along, which is Jesus is Lord. That's the truth tonight. Many men don't believe it. They don't accept it. They don't acknowledge it. But one day all men will. That's why the great Vance Havner said, I never ask a man, will you bow to Jesus? I ask him, when will you bow to Jesus? Because you most certainly will. Sooner or later, one way or the other, you most certainly will. And of course, the famous passage that everyone knows is in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the, tonight, folk, the saving difference, the eternal difference comes on the basis of the timing of that acknowledgement. If tonight you acknowledge in the here and now, in this day of grace, if tonight you acknowledge the reality of the Lordship of Christ, not just Lord of all, but Lord of me, if you acknowledge that tonight, that's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be saved by grace and safe from the wrath that's to come. If you refuse to do it now, then there's a day coming when still you will. But it'll be too late to do you any eternal good. History continues to unfold from our perspective today. Rulers come and go. Our culture is devolving further and further. The Bible says evil men shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Things are going down and down in terms of the culture. And finally, the very Antichrist himself will come forth and carry the world away into all-out rebellion against God and Christ. But this is where it all ends up. It ends up with every knee bowed and every tongue confessing in chorus, Jesus Christ is Lord. So wisdom would say, wisdom would say, now is the time to do it while it can still make a difference in where I spend eternity because sooner or later, everyone's going to see and admit the truth. May I read this verse to you one last time? But the court will convene and his ruling authority, that is the Antichrist's ruling authority, will be removed, destroyed and abolished forever. Then the kingdom, authority, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be delivered to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. All authorities will serve him and obey him. And this is the conclusion of the matter. Peter once said to Jesus, when that rich young ruler walked away unwilling to 
sell out to follow Christ? Peter said in the following paragraph, Lord, we've, we've left everything to follow you. We've left it all. I guess he thought it was really, you know, a great sacrifice and he wanted to be acknowledged for how great his sacrifice. Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, if you have left houses, land, family, to follow me in this life, you'll receive a hundredfold. And in the life to come. You know what he said to him? He said, you 12, you 12 who've left everything, you're going to one day be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a pretty good exchange. That doesn't sound a lot like sacrifice to me. Does it to you to give up a fishing boat? Peter had a fishing boat. He gave up a fishing boat to get a crown and a throne. There is no real sacrifice, ladies and gentlemen. Not really. There is no real sacrifice for Jesus. Anything you give up or give away or turn loose of now for the glory of God, well, my friend, you'll never even think of it again. There'll be such a repayment in the reward of heaven. One of these days, it's going to be worth it all when I see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for these moments and for this passage. And I pray, God, you'd help me, Lord Jesus, to live in light of eternity. And not let the foolishness of the momentary and the loud-mouthed, demonized world around me make me forget that one day every mouth shall be stopped and every knee shall bow and the only thing anyone will be saying anymore is Jesus Christ is Lord. In Jesus I pray this. Amen.